Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. everyone, welcome back to another episode of Talking Tudors. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'd like to start by thanking the sponsor of today's episode, Sandra Bird, author of the Tudor Ladies in Waiting series. A rich alchemy of fact and fiction, these critically acclaimed books chronicle the glittering court lives of three queens and their closest friends and companions. The novels brim with heartwarming and heartbreaking circumstances and heroines who choose lives worth risking all. Book One to Die For follows Queen Anne Boleyn through the viewpoint of Margaret Wyatt. Library Journal awarded it a Best Books of the Year pick and said the novel brings history to life in exquisite detail. Book Two, The Secret Keeper, uncovers love and betrayal in the life of Queen Catherine Parr. Library Journal calls this book atmospheric, full of twists, and a must-read for Tudor fiction fans. Finally, book three, Roses Have Thorns, draws close to Queen Elizabeth I through Ellen von Snakenborg, who transformed into Helena, the Marchioness of Northampton. I loved all three books and found this concluding one masterful, impeccably researched, and deliciously detailed storytelling. The series is available on Amazon.com. I'd also like to acknowledge and thank the wonderful listeners who continue to support Talking Tudors on Patreon and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. As an independent podcaster, this really does mean a lot to me. If you love the podcast, if you never miss an episode, I invite you to join the Talking Tudors Patreon family. Please visit patreon.com slash talkingtudors for more information. When you join the Patreon community, you'll instantly unlock access to exclusive posts, including audio releases and videos. Patrons are also eligible to attend additional monthly live talks and take part in a member-only book club. They can also enter patron-only monthly giveaways to name but a few of the perks. You can support the podcast and share your love of Tudor history with the world by buying Talking Tudors merchandise. There are a number of designs and products available, including phone cases, mugs, notebooks and apparel. Check out all the products at talkingtudors.threadless.com. Now, on to today's episode. I'm thrilled that joining me on the podcast to chat about her new book, Young Elizabeth, Princess, Prisoner, Queen, is Dr. Nicola Tallis. Dr. Tallis is an independent author and historian and a fellow of the Royal Historical Society. She has worked as a curator, researcher and lecturer and specialises in the use of jewels in late medieval and Tudor England. 
Nicola has spoken at many prestigious events and venues, including the Emirates Festival of Literature, the Tower of London, Hampton Court and the National Archives. She's made numerous television and radio appearances, including on BBC's Who Do You Think You Are, Channel 5's The Vikings and the Gunpowder Plot, and Channel 4's Frankie Boyle's Farewell to the Monarchy. Nicola is the author of five books. Let's dive straight into our conversation. Welcome back to Talking Tudors, Nicola. How are you? Oh, hi, Natalie. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really well, thank you. I hope you are too. I am. Thank you. I've been looking forward to speaking to you again. It's been a little while since I've had you on the podcast. So I suppose it would be wonderful if you could just introduce yourself to our listeners and just tell us a little bit about you and your background. Yeah, of course. So my name is Nicola Tallis and I am the author of now five books, which sounds a bit mad, but um, yes, so I've written mostly about Tudor women and most recently about the life of the young Elizabeth I prior to her accession to the throne. Now, this is really exciting. And this one's coming out soon, isn't it? It is. It's out on the 29th of February. So it's it's coming around very, very quickly. Beautiful. And I think by the time I publish this, it should be out there for everybody to enjoy. So we, we are going to talk a little bit about the young Elizabeth today. So what inspired you to turn, to turn your attention to a, a Princess Elizabeth or a young Elizabeth? Well, it's, it's quite an interesting story, I suppose, because I had a meeting with my publisher when we came to think about book five. And the book has actually changed shape because I was originally commissioned to write a full biography of Elizabeth, which um, I know you'll understand how daunting that prospect is, um, especially given how popular she is, how much material there is already out there about Elizabeth. And actually, it didn't take me that long to recognise that I was more drawn to her earlier life and I felt that there was a lot more to say about that that perhaps hadn't been said before or interpreted in the way that I interpreted it. So we decided to cut it down, which probably the best decision I made regarding that book. And um, yeah, and I think I think that it was just really the fact that it wasn't Elizabeth I that I was writing about, that I was drawn to. That's all with the benefit of hindsight, of course. It was a girl and a youngster who was experiencing uncertainty, who was going through a really tumultuous time and had no idea whether the throne of England was even achievable during her youth. So that's very much why I was drawn to her. Yes, it's such a captivating story, I think, her early years. And so I'm sure most of our listeners are, of course, aware that Elizabeth was the daughter of Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn. And we know Anne Boleyn's terrible and brutal fate when Elizabeth is just a toddler, really. So what was her life like following the execution of her mother? Well, I think it's fair to say that Elizabeth was living most of her youth out of the limelight. So she spent a lot of time after Anne's death away from court and um, in the company of her household. She was primarily living at Hatfield in Hertfordshire. And there she had um, her governess, Kate Astley, sometimes better known as Cat Ashley, but Kate Astley, I call her. Um, so she she had her to look after her. She had Lady Bryan, who was, of course, one of Anne's relatives looking after her for a time and also another lady called Lady Troy and 
it's also during this time after Anne's death and whilst Elizabeth's living away from court that she forges quite a close relationship with her half-sister, Mary. And that was a really important relationship to Elizabeth during her youth. So she is living largely away from court until her father marries Catherine Parr in 1543. And at that time, Elizabeth is brought very much back into the folds of court life. So she does still have her own household. She is still spending time away from court. But for the first time, it almost feels like she's got more stability and more of a family because Catherine takes a huge close interest in her and really um, tries to reinforce Elizabeth in her father's remembrances as well. So, um, so yes, she has Catherine who plays a hugely important role in her life and all of these other strong female women around her who are integral really in trying to not only care for her and bring her up but instill in her the principles of her education and um, and you know make sure that she can find a place for herself in this world. So Nicola, tell us a little bit more about her household in these early years. Is, is this a shared household with a sister? Are they living together at this point? So it's not necessarily a shared household. They both have, both Elizabeth and Mary have their own household staff, which largely mirror one another's, although Mary does have a, a greater household, um, which is a reflection largely of her age. And they, but they do tend to spend a lot of time in one another's company. So quite often they are in the same place, but with their own households to cater for their needs. And um, in Elizabeth's case, we know that, I mentioned Kate Astley, so she plays a hugely important part in Elizabeth's life and later gains fame for perhaps some of the wrong reasons. And so she's hugely important in terms of emotional support for Elizabeth and also is somebody who is entrusted with teaching Elizabeth to begin with, which is quite unusual, you know, the fact that Elizabeth is receiving her first grounding in education from a female member of her own household. So that's something that's quite unusual. Probably something similar had had happened with Mary as well. But yes, and she also has, it seems that Elizabeth is also raised with children or youngsters who are of a similar age to her as well. So I don't think she'd necessarily have lacked for young company, which is wonderful to hear. Because, of course, Mary, although an important figure in Elizabeth's life, was significantly older than her. So would have been seen as more of a maternal figure. And what's quite interesting with Elizabeth's household as well is that there are members of her household who we know were there from when she was, you know, probably about three, four years old, who stay with her for the entirety of her youth, really. And so these were basically an extension of her family. These were the closest people to her that she would have likely had really quite strong emotional relationships with as well. So I think that that's quite interesting that these people, you see the same names that tend to pop up time and again. And yeah, as I say, I think that these were probably also an important part of providing Elizabeth with stability. Yes, I agree with you. I know it's amazing to see that sort of devoted service to her, you know, people serving her till, well, till they die, really. <laughs> that, that's yeah, yeah, that's exactly. quite amazing, isn't it? So yeah. you talked a little bit about Catherine Parr earlier. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about her relationship with her stepmothers, the ones that she, she got to kind of know at least a little? Yeah, absolutely. So 
we start with Jane Seymour, that relationship was very, very brief. And it has often been said that Jane didn't necessarily show much of an interest in Elizabeth. And I think it's fair to say that she did certainly take a greater interest in Mary. I think partially the age um, accounts for this. Uh, she didn't. Jane didn't really have any place for a, a young girl at that time. But she did pay for clothes for Elizabeth. So I think that it's fair to say that perhaps she did take a closer interest in Elizabeth than she's perhaps been credited with. As for Anne of Cleves, we don't know a great deal about her relationship with Elizabeth whilst Anne was married to Henry. But certainly in later life, it seems that they got along quite well together and that, you know, Anne was quite fond of Elizabeth, certainly. So I think that it is very possible that there was some interaction there during Anne's brief marriage to Elizabeth's father. Catherine Howard certainly seems to have been very fond of Elizabeth. And let's not forget that she was, of course, related to Anne Boleyn as well. So there was this blood tie there between them. And we know that there are notes in Catherine's jewel inventory, which show that she made gifts of jewels to the little girl, which I think is quite touching, really. And, you know, a sign that she was interested in forging a relationship with this young girl. But of course, sadly for Elizabeth, these three stepmothers, Others are gone within quite quick succession of one another and not in great circumstances either. So I think that by the time that Catherine Parr arrives on the scene in the summer of 1543, Elizabeth is really craving that stability and that female mother figure, I suppose. And Catherine is more than willing to provide that for her. And of course, Catherine's already fulfilled that role um, in terms of she's got two stepchildren as a result of her second marriage, who she adores. And she very quickly throws herself into the role of stepmother with all three of the royal children, Edward, Mary and Elizabeth. And Elizabeth certainly is very, very receptive to Catherine's warmth and I think it's quite interesting as well, although coincidental, that um, Elizabeth's first surviving letter is to Catherine. And it's written um, just over a year after Catherine's marriage to Henry VIII. And I think that we can see quite clearly Elizabeth's affection for her stepmother in this. And you know, she talks about the fact that um, she hasn't seen Catherine for a while and that she really craves her presence. And I think that this is really a young girl who's just crying out for somebody to love her, to show her that attention and uh, who wants to please as well. So I think that, that that there are a lot of insecurities in Elizabeth at this time in her life and that she sort of looks to Catherine Parr as the person to help um, to help soothe those. Yes, I was just having a look at her translation that she gives Catherine Parr's a New Year's gift when she's about 11, I think, um, Marguerite de Nabar's poem. And, and I think, yes, you get that real sense that, of course, she admired and respected her, but also that she knew it was important to nurture that particular relationship, I think, with Catherine, even at that young age, which is really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think that's exactly right. I think there is, she knows that that relationship is really important and they have got a lot in common in terms of their scholarly interests and abilities. But yeah, she 
absolutely knows that Catherine is the key to maintaining her position within the royal family and also as a means of really brokering that relationship between Elizabeth and her father. Yes, exactly. That very complicated relationship, I would say. Um, <laughs> yeah. So you've talked about all these obviously strong uh, personalities and women, lots of women surrounding Elizabeth and people devoted to her and, and to serving her. Who do you think, if you had to pick one or two, were the most kind of influential people on the young Elizabeth's life? Yeah, so I would definitely say Catherine Parr is one of them. Um, and I would also say Kate Astley. I think it's quite interesting. I think with Elizabeth, when you're in, you're in. <laughs> and um, she will reward you with her loyalty for the rest of her life. And we really, really see that with Kate during the Seymour scandal when that is all playing out and um, Elizabeth is being questioned over her complicity with Sir Thomas Seymour. And she really does make it clear that she is going to defend Kate Astley and her other servant, Thomas Parry, as far as she feasibly can. Um, so I think that I think that that's a quality really to be admired in Elizabeth, even during this young age. It's just yeah, that strong, steadfast sense of loyalty and devotion. Yeah, I think something she um, probably inherited from her mother as well, which which was very yeah. loyal to the people, obviously supporting her. Um, yeah. So we've talked a little bit about Mary and how they obviously did spend quite a bit of time together growing up. But of course, that was a very complex relationship as well, just given the history with their mothers. So do you want to tell us a little bit more about how Mary and Elizabeth got along? Yeah. So, I mean, as you say, it's a hugely, hugely complex relationship. Again, one of the most interesting, I think, of Elizabeth's life, or certainly Elizabeth's youth, um, and one that, as I suppose in some ways, it's the same with all families. It's not straightforward by any means. It's very messy. It's difficult to unpick at points. And, you know, as you sort of alluded to, it starts in very bitter and difficult circumstances purely by reason of their mothers. And so I think it's quite a tragedy in some ways that relationship between the two sisters, in some ways I feel was not doomed is too strong a word, but it was always destined to be extremely challenging before they'd even met. And the first couple of years of Elizabeth's life, Mary doesn't really show any interest in Elizabeth whatsoever. Although she acknowledges that Elizabeth is her sister, but she refuses to yield any kind of precedence. And I think this is all, you know, fueled by the difficult relationship, obviously, that Mary has with Anne during these years. But as soon as Anne is removed, I have to say, to Mary's credit, she does manage to separate Elizabeth from her mother. And I think feels a great sense of pity for Elizabeth that this young child is now motherless and does almost assume that maternal role. And we see these really touching references to Elizabeth in Mary's accounts that show that she was buying presents for her younger sister. Um, so we see that she's giving Elizabeth money to play cards. Perhaps it was Mary who taught Elizabeth these card games. We don't know. And there are gifts from Mary to members of Elizabeth's household. So I think that it's fair to say that there was this warmth um, between them. And certainly also Mary takes care to remind her father of Elizabeth and praises her to him during these years. And I think that the rest of Henry's reign 
there is this closeness between them. But it does change when Henry dies. And it becomes clear at that point, I think, that the sisters are set on very different paths. So Mary establishes her own household and Elizabeth goes to live with Catherine Parr. And they don't really see one another very much at all during the reign of their brother, Edward VI. And as his reign progresses, the differences between them become ever more apparent because, of course, Mary is a a fervent Catholic and has no intention of renouncing her religion despite the pressure that she's put under by her younger brother, Edward, to conform to his religious policies. And Elizabeth's voice during this time is largely silent. There's only one letter to her that was written, um, sorry, one letter by her that was written to Mary during Edward's reign. And she refers to Mary as being her good sister. It's not a particularly warm letter, but it does suggest that they have been in contact quite regularly through letter. And indeed, During the first days of Mary's reign, the sisters seem to be um, very, very on good terms. Mary seems very happy to have Elizabeth by her side, but it doesn't take long for that relationship to sour. And that seems to have happened in the aftermath of um, Mary's first parliament. So a couple of months after her reign has been established and During this time, she has the legislation declaring herself illegitimate revoked, which means that it's just Elizabeth who's illegitimate. And I think that it's at this time that her attitude sort of begins to change and the wounds of the past begin to reopen. And she's reminded by Elizabeth's presence of all the pain that she's been caused by Anne Boleyn. And I think that this combined with the poison that Elizabeth's enemies, chiefly in the form of the imperial ambassadors, are dripping in Mary's ears, it doesn't take very long for this to get into Mary's head. And she's soon convinced that Elizabeth is plotting against her. And at the beginning of 1554, matters for Elizabeth go very, very badly wrong. And it's sort of a downward turn in the relationship between the two sisters that they never recover from. Yes, and I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit more about some of those dangers and, and tragedies as well that, that Elizabeth faced before ascending the throne. As you said, there were plots and there were all sorts of things, quite a perilous journey to the throne. So do you want to talk to us a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, the main the main thing or the main plot that Elizabeth becomes embroiled in is the Wyatt Rebellion. And the Wyatt Rebellion sees Elizabeth placed in imprisonment in the tower where she is fearful for her life, basically accused of complicity in trying to overthrow Mary and uh, be with Elizabeth as the Queen's replacement. And this is a really interesting point in Elizabeth's story because it's quite difficult to try and untangle exactly where her knowledge and involvement of this plot lay. And I think that that's also quite characteristic of Elizabeth. Even at this young age, she's quite shrewd. um, She's very careful. I don't think that she was actually involved in plotting against her sister, but I definitely think that she had some knowledge of what was afoot and had conveniently forgotten to tell Mary that what that knowledge was. So... This is a really difficult time for Elizabeth. She she is summoned to London for questioning over her role in the Wyatt Rebellion. And she she's very, very ill at this time. So she was plagued by illness during her youth, largely 
exacerbated by stress, I think, and, you know, the uncertainty that she often was faced with. And uh, Mary was absolutely adamant that Elizabeth had been plotting against her. She would not hear otherwise and decided that to break Elizabeth's resolve, she was going to send her to the tower. And Elizabeth you know, even without her mother's example before her, must have been absolutely terrified by this because their cousin, Lady Jane Grey, was already imprisoned in the tower as a result of her failed coup to take power. Um, And so I think Elizabeth, she was just absolutely terrified. She was really in fear of her life. She did her utmost to try and prevent being sent to the tower, writing Mary the infamous letter that we all know of, the Tide letter, in which she begged Mary not to send her to this prison. It didn't work. She ended up going to the tower. And yeah, we do know that she was just, she was in a constant state of living on her nerves, really. But it didn't take long before it became clear that there was no evidence forthcoming against her and that Mary couldn't really take further action against her. So it doesn't take long before it becomes clear that Elizabeth's life is probably going to be safe. Although again, Elizabeth doesn't really know this for sure. Um, But after two months of imprisonment in the tower, she's taken, and I think this is a deliberate irony on Mary's part that she's removed from the tower on the anniversary of Anne Boleyn's execution. I really do think that that's a reminder to Elizabeth of, you know, this is what happened to your mother. You're still not quite out of danger, in my opinion. But she's taken off to the old royal palace of Woodstock for a spell of house imprisonment. And it's quite clear that nobody really knows what to do with her during this time because Mary's preoccupied elsewhere. At this time, she's busy making plans for her marriage to Philip of Spain. Um, And Elizabeth very, very quickly becomes depressed. She becomes ill again because she's left in this kind of limbo where she's got no idea what her fate might be. And she is eventually released from Woodstock and brought back to Mary at court. But it's clear by now that the relationship between the two sisters has broken down. Mary may have been willing to allow Elizabeth back at court, but she was certainly not willing to allow her back into her heart. And I think it is a real tragedy that that is the way, really, that was the pattern of the sisters' relationship in the last few years of Mary's life, was that it was really hankered by mistrust, um, by suspicion, and by fear. And I do think that that is really sad on both of their parts, because the relationship did have potential to be a warm one and had started that way. So again, it's all really because of outside interference and um, the circumstances into which they'd been born. Yeah, so I was just thinking about the interesting parallels in their lives. So when Mary was, you know, when her father was married to Anne Boleyn and she was under all that stress, she was constantly ill all the time, Mary. Yeah. And then Elizabeth the same, as you say, constantly yeah. ends with that stress and fear and, and all, oh goodness, it just, it's difficult to imagine living like that, isn't it? Oh, it's horrible. It's, I think it's no wonder really that these poor girls and women had so many health issues, like you say, because you were constantly living on your nerves. And I think that actually there are probably so many other people during this period who experience similar problems whose um you know ailments aren't quite so well documented but I think that we can quite clearly see in Elizabeth and Mary and those problems you know just how tumultuous and difficult it was living life at the Tudor court just this constant anxiety just yeah horrible 
Yeah, really awful. And do you think, Nicola, that that early, those, that affection that she had for her sister early on, perhaps in a way kind of saved her? Or do you think it's just that Mary didn't have the sufficient evidence she needed to, to convict Elizabeth of anything treasonable really in the end? I think it's a bit of both. It's, it's, it's so difficult. And we see, we do see that, um, that Mary, Mary, I think, does really want to act against Elizabeth when she's in the tower. Whether she would have actually gone through with it or not, it's so difficult to say. Because we know, you know, Mary wasn't a cold-hearted woman by any means. She did her utmost to try and save Lady Jane Grey. Executing her was a decision she made with an extremely heavy heart. And so I can't imagine it would have been any easier for her to make that sort of decision with her own sister. But it is very clear as Mary's reign progresses that support for Elizabeth is growing. Not least of all, within Mary's own council, there are members of her council who make it clear to Mary that despite what she may feel towards her sister, you know, Elizabeth, with with a lack of air on Mary's part, Elizabeth is inevitably going to succeed. And I think that that's, that's quite a bit of pill for Mary to swallow. But I don't think it's so much about Elizabeth. I think it's the fact that she is desperately sad about the fact that she hasn't been able to have a child of her own. So it's, I think, Ultimately, Mary does harbour a lot of anger towards Elizabeth. But when it came down to it, would she have been able to act against her further if given the opportunity? I'm not I'm not sure. And certainly I think it wouldn't have been a decision that she made lightly, despite the fact that she doesn't treat Elizabeth particularly nicely during her last years. And and so obviously Elizabeth has gone through a lot on her path to the throne, as we've heard. So what do you think are some of the, the most important lessons that she learned while she was observing her brother on the throne, her sister on the throne, that they, then she maybe implemented or used when she was queen? Well, I think that she learned um, the importance of caution during this time. And we see this, I think, with Mary when she takes steps to restore the land to Catholicism. And and actually the same with Edward implementing his um, radical religious policies in the opposite religious direction. And I think that both of these policies were unpopular to an extent. And I think that Elizabeth learns that you have to sort of navigate these waters very carefully, not just in terms of religion, but with everything. I think you have to test the waters, you have to go slowly, um, and you have to also try and remove your own personal feelings from the situation, which I think is something that both Mary and Edward are not able to do because they're both very passionate about their religion. And I'm not saying that Elizabeth's not, but I'm saying that she just watches this and yeah, she does learn. She does learn from that. And I think, of course, also there is the the more famous example of Elizabeth never marrying. And she talks about this, the fact that she's seen how her sister has married a foreigner and lost the love of her people. So I do think most definitely that Elizabeth benefited from the fact that she she was the third of her siblings to wear the crown because it has been said before that she was able to watch and capitalise on Mary's mistakes, and absolutely she was. But I think she also did the same with Edward too, certainly in terms of, of the religious question. And I think that, you know, these are really important and valuable lessons for her that she does take forward. And she sort of, I do like to think of her as being like a sponge at this age, because she does seem to just soak up everything that's happening. You know, it's the same with the, the Lady Jane Grey issue where Elizabeth's voice is is silent during this time. And 
we don't know really what she's thinking or feeling because she's just lying low and waiting to see what is going to happen. And I think she's learned a lot of this as a result of the Seymour scandal. And I think she really just has learned the the power of keeping her own counsel, not rushing in too fast. So um, most definitely, I think caution is something that comes as a result of her experiences and as a result of watching both of her siblings wear the crown first. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I, another thing that I always think she learned by, by observing them is, of course, the importance of the love of your subjects and that there's safety in in nurturing that relationship with your subjects, which we see her do so brilliantly throughout her, her long reign as well. Yeah, absolutely. That's a hugely important thing. And I think that Elizabeth recognises, actually, that certainly, well, she's always been popular, um, but particularly, I think, during those latter years of Mary's reign, that popularity and that love of the English people comes to mean a great deal to her. And I think it's from that time almost that the penny drops and she, like you said, realises the importance of nurture. You know, there are reports which talk about the fact that when Elizabeth was taken from the tower. Um, Mary's subjects were celebrating because they thought she'd been set at her liberty. Of course, she hasn't. Um, and But people, when Elizabeth was being taken to Woodstock, people were flooding the roads to see her and to interact with her. And I think she really played on that popularity as well. And yeah, did come to realise just how important it was. And yeah, as you say, that's something that she does so brilliantly. And I think most definitely that's something that she picked up on during her youth. And I mean, she really was intelligent on so many levels, not just intellectually, but she does have this common sense. And she does also have this common touch with the people as well, who do seem to absolutely adore her. And so if you had to sum up the young woman that you got to know during your research, what would you say about her? Tell us a little bit about this, this young lady that you um, spent so much time with. Yeah, so I would say that she was really, this is just my impressions, my impressions change of her when she becomes queen. So this is purely just based on her youth. And I do think that she is an absolutely remarkable woman who went through more than any of us can ever imagine in the 21st century. I mean, realistically, how many of us can say that our father executed our mothers? I mean, it's it's just, it's unfathomable. And I think that she, she rose from the ashes, effectively, of from situations that could have broken her, that could have ruined her. She was strong, she was resilient. And I think that all of the experiences that she had during her youth, the uncertainty, the fear, the sheer terror of not knowing whether you were going to survive to the next day in some instances, these all really helped not only to shape her character, but also to form her judgment and really did make her one of England's most successful queens. So I think that if she had received a childhood and a youth that were more settled, perhaps we might not remember her in the same way. So yeah, this is a woman who, a young woman who is resilient, who's strong, who never ceased to amaze or surprise me in many ways. And although I feel like over the last three or four years, I've come to know her quite well, in some respects, I also find Elizabeth, Elizabeth to be unknowable because of the fact that she kept so much hidden as well. So my impressions of her are, as I've said, but who knows, there probably was much more to her. So definitely a youth of hidden depths too. 
What an amazing, amazing story. It's been so wonderful chatting to you about the young Elizabeth. And of course, I encourage all of our listeners to go and purchase Nicola's book if you want to find out more about this incredible period of history, incredible time in Elizabeth's life. But I can't let you go just yet, Nicola, because I have one more question for you, and that's out to you to take away. So I, I like to ask all my guests for a little something for our listeners to go off and explore after the episode. So do you have a takeaway for us? Yes, I absolutely do. So I would highly encourage and recommend everybody to go and check out the Holbein at the Tudor Court exhibition, which is currently at the Queen's Gallery at Buckingham Palace until April. Elizabeth is there, although not painted by Holbein, but the beautiful image of Elizabeth, which is also on the front cover of my book, can be seen there up close for the first time ever, as far as I'm aware. But you'll also be able to see up close all of these characters and personalities that form such an integral part of her story so if you want to get to know the young Elizabeth and certainly um, the court that she was surrounded by then that is the place to go what a wonderful takeaway I I loved seeing that portrait actually I think I stood in front of it for I don't know 10 minutes till people kicked me out so that's amazing (laughs) absolutely amazing Nicola thank you so much for taking the time to come back onto the podcast and talk Tudors with us oh it's such a pleasure thank you so much for having me and hopefully be back again soon Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners, so if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon. Mm-hmm.